On GDC Podcast episode 27, we have Brian Collinsworth, game designer at Naughty Dog, where he worked on The Last of Us Part 2. He joins me, Chris Graft, publisher at GameDeveloper.com, and editor-in-chief Alyssa McAloon to talk about his work on making believable NPCs, philosophies on game design, and how he design a friendly Velociraptor NPC companion. This episode was recorded live during GDC 2021 earlier this year, and is brought to you by Exola. Back in a sec. Our next guest is a former intern at PlayStation, was an adjunct professor at Parsons School of Design, a creative director and VR developer at Viacom Next. Uh, today, he's a game designer at Naughty Dog, where he worked on The Last of Us Part Two, and he'll be giving a, do- a talk tomorrow on that with fellow Naughty Doggers, not sure if that's the official term, uh, called Bringing Allies to Life in The Last of Us Part Two. Let's welcome Brian Collinsworth. Hello, Brian. Hi. How's it going? going uh, great to be here this morning. Really excited for this. Yeah. Thanks a lot for joining us. And um, yeah, I, I didn't know how far back I was supposed to go in the um, rundown of your career on your LinkedIn page, but I did make sure to include former intern at PlayStation. Um, so uh, yeah, I, let, maybe we could just get started um, about your game development background. I know like there's some early people that came into chat here that are already uh, saying that, you know, Last of Us Part Two is the reason why I'm getting into the game industry. Brian, your your game development back, background, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, and and I don't know if this is, maybe this is interesting and, and worth mentioning because this wasn't my first career. I started off working in, a, some would say, a very different sector, nonprofit, politics, um, and but I was always in in that world for about ten years, doing a lot of the kind of creative elements of it. So working on ads, digital media, um, getting into some basic coding and and creative work like that. And so and and you know I played video games. I liked video games. I liked thinking about and writing about and and talking about and sharing them with friends. So I had this opportunity to go to grad school at Parsons School of Design. Um, started learning from some really great game design teachers there. And uh, from there, actually, yeah, I got the opportunity to start off as a, as a game design intern uh, with Pixel Opus, which is a, mm-hmm. a small kind of indie-ish studio um, working with them, PlayStation. They released Concrete Genie last year, which is the yeah. game I was working on very early prototypes of. And that was really fun exploring these kind of distinct and unusual mechanics of painting uh, murals on walls and then bringing them to life into these little monsters that accompany you through the world. They're kind of their own types of NPCs in a way, which I have a feeling we'll be talking about more today. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that was that was where I got started off and, and that was, you know, a lot of fun. And from there, uh, moved on. I mean, that was at a point a few years back when virtual reality, mixed reality, augmented reality, all the realities were blowing up and people were trying to figure out, you know, what what can we do with this? What are the the boundaries of this technology? What are the possibilities of it? Um, so was working in this um, small shop within Viacom called Viacom Next uh, to explore yeah. what we could do with that. Um, and since they're a big media company, we were bringing in uh, musicians, got to do this project with 
um, Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins, oh, no. <laughs> this wild tilt brush world that we created. And um, yeah, all in virtual reality uh, with interactive things you could pick up and throw around. So that was a lot of fun. And then from there, I, I came over to Naughty Dog and dove into The Last of Us Part Two. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, I won't ask you too much about Billy Corgan, um, but yeah. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I really like it when we get game developers on here where game development wasn't the first you know thing that they get into. And I noticed that when I was uh, doing our stocking research uh, you know, in preparation for this. Um, but what was it about, I saw that you were doing some like grassroots political stuff. Um, it was, was there like at, at what point where you're like, I'm, you know, I think I can actually make a career change here. When did that kind of, you know, get in your mind as this is a possibility that I can completely change course? Yeah, that's a it's interesting question. I think it did sort of happen over the course of um, going to grad school and focusing mm -hmm. in on, on design and, and technology um, in, in the Parsons program. But, you know, there, there are, when I think back about it, more interesting parallels there that start to jump out. Okay. Uh, one thing that I think is really valuable and important, especially at a studio like Naughty Dog, where we're focused on these kind of big storytelling, complex games, is that people bring in a lot of different and very interesting backgrounds. Um, mm -hmm. And that experience informs uh, the design and the art and everything else. Um, and, you know, I think Neil Druckmann has talked about how his own personal life experiences go into all of these stories. And I think all mm -hmm. of us kind of try to live by that same philosophy. So our past experiences are coming in. We've got a lot of people there with you sort of appointed a random person in the Naughty Dog studio and you're going to hit a theater background or a music background of some sort or some other interesting thing they've done in their lives. So that that all comes in. Um and just also, you know, the last thing I was working on before I made the transition, ironically, was this effort to um, make medicines and vaccines more equitably accessible around the world, which 10 oh, years wow. later is now kind of an important yeah. topic. Um, yeah. But, you know, was doing a lot of work there that was very data driven and analytic to try to, you know, kind of figure out these flows of drugs and medicines across different countries. And that's not that different from a lot of the work I do as a technical designer of trying to understand when I'm building a system, how it's going to work for players. And then when they actually play test it, what their experience is, figuring out, you know, that 10th or 100th person that it's not working out for and how we solve that or, or fix that problem. Yeah. Yeah, we have somebody in chat saying uh, that their first career choice was in IT, and then now they're uh, getting into game development, and you know that just feels like home for them. So, yeah, that's that's really cool. And tomorrow, uh, you're giving a, a GDC talk, which I, I was able to watch. You know, just you know this morning, and like, and uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? It's um, about uh, creating the friendly NPCs, making them more believable uh, characters. Sure, yeah. Um, so this is a big chunk of what I worked on in The Last of Us Part Two with uh, my co-presenter tomorrow, Mikhail Mach, um, a few other designers, programmers, Vinith Agarwal, uh, Kareem Omar. Uh, there are a bunch of us at Naughty Dog who are all kind of working um, towards the end of the project to really focus in on these ambient gameplay moments. So, you know, the game is kind of breaks out down into cinematics where you have these 
kind of pre-authored, acted big story moments. You have these combat encounters where you're fighting enemies, and then um, you have these kind of wide open exploration areas. And I think what is really stands out and we were pushing forward with The Last of Us Part Two was how much of the storytelling and development of the arc of the game happens in those ambient moments, we call them, right? Where you are wandering through the world with one of your ally friendly NPCs like Dina or Jesse or Lev or Yar or Owen there. I counted there like 11 human NPCs total um, that you're with in gameplay. And then there's Alice the dog who I also worked on uh, some of her NPC behavior. And um, yeah, so we, we found that we really had to raise the bar for those in gameplay exploration moments because that was as crucial for players to build a relationship with these characters. And then through that to become invested in the arc of the game as those pre-authored cinematics or those combat, you know, pitched moments. Yeah. It's kind this of is, interesting. Yeah. Sorry, just cutting in here. No, uh, because you look back to like a PlayStation 1 game and you're like, here's Final Fantasy 7, here's this gorgeous cutscene, and then it cuts back and it's these blocky models. And that was then what kind of pulled you out of it. But using our privileges to peer ahead into the talk you give, um, you guys kind of talk about this idea that you would come out of a cutscene where a character like Dina is incredibly expressive and just acting as a normal human would, and then you go to gameplay and they're just following these rigid paths in like an earlier build of the game. Um, I guess, can you talk about trying to define realism through, how do you, how do you make a realistic NPC? Like, do you just study like human behavior and be like, Oh, they're going to like cross their arms at this point. Like what defines a realistic NPC? What, what gap are you trying to close there? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. That is definitely the challenge. Right. So you know, we, yeah, that transition into gameplay um, and we're sitting there, you know, kind of reviewing early builds of the game and um, Neil or somebody else would be like, why is, why is she just standing there staring at me now? <laughs> like that, that doesn't feel natural. Um, I think, and, and it's interesting too, that you mentioned, um, you know, kind of earlier games, cause we've had NPCs in games forever, right? Yeah. yeah. And you figured out early on how to do some basic things, um, you know, like I have them answer questions or respond to you, or maybe in a very simple way, tell you where to go next. Uh, but, you know, now there's that, I don't know if it's a real stat, but it's the kind of stat you'd throw around in a Ted talk that like 80% of human interaction is nonverbal. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of this has come up for us in the past year, right? Like we're on zoom right now. We've, we've lost a lot of that nonverbal communication. Um, but in terms of game design, we now have the the technical capacity and, the um, ability to try to bring the, all of those subtle nonverbal kind of social creature cues in um, and imbue our NPC characters with them so that players are responding not just to their voice lines or not just to the marker they're placing on a map, mm -hmm. but, you know, the subtle body language that changes. So, uh, you know, one example of that that we use quite a bit in the game is, is to transition between uh, ambient exploration moment and a combat moment. So if Jesse or Dina is running out ahead of you and spots enemies, they don't have to necessarily call that out. The first thing you as the player are going to notice is that their body language changes, that suddenly they're more hunched, that they're pulling out their gun, that they're getting nervous. And those kinds of things really contribute to the, the advances in realism that we were able to make. Yeah. The, the, like 
Um, I, I had tweeted this and I think that you had just seen it like right before uh, we went on here, but I watched the talk and then I was just like, my, like, this is mind blowing because it's all under the hood stuff. It's all really just like hidden and it does such a good job of, of hiding it. Like the amount of detail. I mean, you all like along with Mikhail, um, even adjusted stuff like, okay, um, like Dina's walking too fast here and it looks like she's going to be late. And by the way, everyone, I'm going to, we're going to be talking about the talk, but we're not going to get as in-depth as, as we, as the talk gets. So it's still absolutely worthwhile seeing, but that level of detail is, is incredible. When, like, when, when do you start in the process, um, doing your part of the work and iterating, you, you get a build and then you break things down and you're just like, okay, this needs a system to fix this and make it more believable. Yeah. It's, um, you know, there, there's never a moment too early, but there's a lot of stuff that needs to get taken care of. And some of the earliest things we had in the game were those cinematics, you know, going all the way back to, I think, Paris games. I mean, before I even joined, I remember watching the cinematic of Abby in the forest about to get hanged by the scars and Lev and Yara come out and save her with their bows and arrows. Um, and, you know, that, that just looks better than many movies I've seen lately, right? And the, the level of acting and everything else there. So we already had that in there raising the bar and we were already starting to notice, okay, we've got we've to figure out what to do with these ambient moments. Um, and then the other thing that was really standing out and kind of drove the development forward was, and you know, we talk about it, this in the talk, but how much of the relationship building and storytelling was moved out of those cinematics and into interactive spaces, like exploring the museum with Joel mm -hmm. or exploring the aquarium with all of Abby's different compatriots. Uh, and so those are spaces where it's not like you press a button and you go into a cinematic and they have a conversation. It's Joel standing there muttering, you know, while looking at a dinosaur and you can walk over mm -hmm. and ask him what's going on or have some small interaction with him like that. So, yeah that was the point at which it became a priority to really make sure that, um, you know, in every little moment, um, the, the allies are, are behaving alive and, you know, really engaging with you and keeping you in the story. Yeah. Um, kind of, no, I have a question on that because I am the person when I find out a game does something like that, I want to find every object I can interact with. I want to hear every little bit of lore and dialogue that comes that way. So I guess when creating these kind of interactive moments in the scene, is there a point where you're like, Where's the line for how much content you put in there for people? Because there's people like me who will stay there for literally ever if you keep giving me dialogue options. How do you kind of decide the scope of that, I guess? Yeah, I, I mean, I think this comes back to a kind of a, a, a guiding game design principle that I keep relearning, which is, you know, it, it often gets expressed as sort of keep it simple, silly, or, or this idea of the the simplest version is often the best to start mm -hmm. with. Um, or the other way I think about it is heuristics or shortcuts to kind of find a way in the game engine and in the technical design to emulate these very complex behaviors um, with the limits that you have in, in a space like this and in a, in a development environment like this. So, you know, for example, those, those moments where you can have all these different things in the room to interact with, one of the challenges is keeping an ally like Joel nearby enough that when the player, you know, sees that 
triangle prompt on a on a sign next to the triceratops that Joel can walk up and they can have their little conversation. And he's not in the next room or somewhere that that is unreachable. So, you know, that's the kind of thing where you could try to hard code it. You could try to always keep him in an exact distance and have him constantly like turning and chasing the player whenever they happen to move. Um, but this is one of the things that you know, we made a, a big advancement, kind of an aha moment in this game of using the system that we previously used for enemy NPCs in, in combat spaces to kind of mm -hmm. choose where they go next. So we just present them with all the points in the world they could go to um, and give them some criteria to evaluate, okay, that point's behind cover, that point will take me too close to another uh, NPC, this will take me closer to the player. Um, and then we apply that same thing to a space like the museum. So now Joel's evaluating, well, have I gone and looked at a dinosaur in a while? Is there a dinosaur I can go and look at? Which of those dinosaurs I can look at is closer to Ellie rather than going to take me across the room from her? And will walking over to look at that dinosaur put me in the camera view that the player has currently? Mm -hmm. um, and just applying that, it doesn't have to be a perfect system. But you run that over and over and over again, and you get this very naturalistic thing where now Joel is kind of maintaining a nice, comfortable, not too close, not too far distance from Ellie. He's always there ready to interact. Um, but he also feels like he's doing that because he's interested in the world and aware of it and engaged with her in the space as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when you were describing that, it sounded kind of like a parent taking their actual child to a museum. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> It, it was like, I, I was kind of like laughing there because, um, yeah, taking the, you know, part of the combat system and then, uh, you know, which is where can this character uh, line up and shoot you better? And then put applying that to, it's like, have I seen a dinosaur yet? <laughs> and going there. And like, I, I think that the system that you all implemented here is such just like one of those things that makes me appreciate game development and design so much because the way that you were describing it, um, Joel is moving, the NPC is moving to all of those different points, those different posts. And all along is like building up, you know, a rating and it's, it's like, yeah, like gathering data and then using that. It's so analytical and then it comes off as so organic and uh, real and human when you're when you're playing it. That's more of a, a, a comment <laughs> than a question. But um, it's just one of those things that makes me uh, appreciate, um, you know, the amount of detail that went in that. So, yeah, I do wanna, yeah. Well, and that does, um, you know, make me think of some other aspects of, of how we made that work. Um, one thing that I was surprised by when I came to Naughty Dog, but we do it all the time. Um, I just had an experience, you know, early on a couple months in where I heard some commotion behind me and I look around and there's a designer and an animator sort of throwing themselves on the ground um, and then like getting up and talking about it and, you know, I'm trying to figure out what's going on and, oh, they're just acting out, a, you know, an, an interactive moment that they need to design and then go to motion capture at the stage and get it. And, you know, the best way to figure that out before we have to go to the whole capture and put the actors in the suits is to just act it out in the studio like that. There's a you question know. from Nathan in chat about that, and you just answered it flawlessly. So. <laughs> Great. I mean, yeah, we were doing a lot of that for these systems, too, of, you know, standing there with me, animator, programmer, and we're saying, OK, well, you know, how would I try to talk to you or engage with you in, in this situation? Um, 
And one of the challenges we were seeing as we implemented this, this nice system to give allies this awareness so they could explore these kind of open, nonlinear spaces in a really natural way, yes, under the hood, it was very analytical. Um, and it was great that now it seemed like their behavior was more directed and logical, but there was still this gap where, you know, at the moment, the, the computer or the, the game engine in an instant, you know, does that analysis and decides, here's where I'm going to go next. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and it still seemed like, you know, the the allies sort of knew that in kind of a, you know, almost clairvoyant way. Mm -hmm. um, and that didn't seem seem very human. So we, you know, had another one of these moments and it was just from acting it out what you actually do that we realized we needed to capture little transition animations. And we got a whole variety of them that we could then implement with motion matching of basically having an actor look around a room, look a little left, look a little right, and then finally settle on something. And we would just always align the animation so where their eyes finally settled was the point where under the hood in the system, we'd already decided that was where they wanted to go next. Mm -hmm. But now we were using that to sell, okay, this is someone looking around and deciding and trying to find what is the next most interesting dinosaur. And that really, again, brings that level of naturalness that kind of covers up what's what's really going on analytically. Yeah, so there, there you go, Nathan. That That's the answer. Uh, Naughty Dog developers are just throwing themselves <laughs> on the floor in the office constantly. Yeah. Um, I want to pull another question from chat here, if that's all right. Um, yeah. Sam wants to know, did you face any unique challenges in polishing that NPC behavior in the final months of development, especially when the little thing called the pandemic came around? Yeah, pandemic transition was was challenging for sure. Um, I think, you know, the, the good news was that by the last month of development, we had these systems kind of built out. And uh, I mean, I can, you know, talk about it. Another kind of core, both to my design philosophy and Naughty Dog is um, rapid prototyping, building the simplest version of a system first finding small spaces where you can test it out and kind of prove everything out before you take it big to the whole project. Mm -hmm. So we really focused in on, it's a lot of the moments we talk about in the talk, but Joel in the museum, Abby in the aquarium, um, a few other points of, of exploration with allies in the game and proved out all these systems there. And that was maybe, you know, a year to six months before we shipped. So that by the time we were really, you know, polishing out the last bugs and all of those things, um, we kind of knew how it was all working and we just had to broaden it out and make it work in, in every beat where we needed it to happen. Mm -hmm. One interesting thing there in terms of the polish was, you know, there are a lot of cases where the animations and behaviors kind of work across different allies. Their, um, you know, appearance and character design is distinctive enough that you can play the same animation on Joel or Dina and it'll look different, it'll look in character. But there were other animations where that didn't work. You'd see a Dina actor's animation on Joel and you, that was obviously like not his demeanor. And we also wanted to give each of the NPCs some distinctiveness. So, mm -hmm. you know, with Ellie and Joel in the first Last of Us, that's, I think, what was so meaningful for many people was how um, how much realized Ellie was, right? You'd look at her in little moments and she's fiddling with her knife or something like that. Um, and now we had to do that for, for 12 NPCs. So we actually 
captured some specific unique idols and animations for each one of them. And for some of them, like uh, Lev, you know, this, this kid who's raised in this kind of sheltered warrior society, and then he joins up with Abby, and his character kind of grows and opens up over the course of his story arc in the game. He starts with some unique, very introverted, kind of shy idols looking at his hands, things like that. And by the time you get to the end of the game, he's opened up a lot more and we're actually playing different, more open, expressive, comfortable idols on his character in these exploration moments. Mm -hmm. uh, Shane wants to know, uh, when moving from narrative moments to cinematics and gameplay, how much of that was systems driven versus hand scripted? For example, Dina running too fast or not having the correct facial expression coming out of a cinematic. So I, I think overall the approach we take is, is make it systemic and then have the ability to hand tune where we need that. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think there is something really important there of having an understanding of, you know, what are the moments that players are really going to be attentive to where those transitions really are going to make a difference versus ones where, you know, the ally is probably not going to be on screen at that moment or it's going to be missed. Uh, so, you know, that's something that comes with a lot of playtesting to, to get a sense of what those crucial moments are that we really want to add that extra polish to um, and then honing in on those. But, you know, we yeah, as a systems designer, we work a lot on getting systems that are solid enough um, that, you know, we don't have to hand tune every single thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, one of the we talk about this in the talk, but one of the big advantages we gained in The Last of Us Part Two was this motion matching technology. So, you know, where you have a huge array of animations that you can pull from that can blend really well into each other um, and that you can run a procedural system to kind of evaluate, okay, you're coming out of this cinematic, you know, what's the best animation in this library to pick at this moment to get you smoothly transitioning out of that? Mm -hmm. I need to ask about the, uh, um, you know, Alice the dog. And, you know, I think that you said that you did, uh, you know, worked on a couple horses also. Uh, are, are, is that basically the same system? Like, uh, could, you know, what was it? How much different was it working on a horse versus Did you, you mocap a dog is the follow-up question <laughs> I want to add in there. <laughs> we, we did mocap both dogs and horses. Mm -hmm. um, my, my colleague Asher was the 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 primary horse guy to my knowledge um he and i sat next to each other so sometimes we'd turn and and um you know kind of share information on horse versus dog but yeah they're actually i think for them they're they're pretty distinct in terms of our goals the the horse was you know primarily for transport and the main goal with with the horse was that it always kind of needs to to be there near the player ready to go um, but also, you know, not feeling like it's just kind of rotely following the player. It, it looks really weird when you turn around and your horse is kind of desperately chasing you to try to. That's basically all horse like right. companions in games. Is like yeah. Whistle yeah, and it's yeah. like, oh, yeah, there's the horse. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, the, the designers who worked on that and, and everyone else, I was really impressed playing through like the Seattle wide open exploration space where mm -hmm. instead of the horse kind of suddenly showing up behind you, you would kind of look for it and it would be in a natural place waiting and, and ready. So yeah, there was, there was some nice work done there um, in terms of the dog. And, and I particularly with Alice worked on the, the doggy fetch moments. Mm -hmm. 
I think one, one interesting thing there that I really like is an illustration of how you take a really complex real world behavior and turn it into something that, that works with the tech constraints we have in, in a game environment. Um, dogs are really fast. And yes, we motion captured her and then, you know, a, a real running dog. And we put that into the game and that it's, it, they move very quickly. Throwing a, a fetch toy is also, or a ball happens very fast, right? So now you're dealing with these two high-speed motions and we're trying to set up a locomotion system so that the dog can run and like get to exactly where the ball is. But it happened so quickly that the dog would keep overshooting, right? And sometimes the toy can bounce off the wall. And so now we told the dog to go over here, but the toy is behind them. And we were, we were wondering if we could ever solve this problem. Um, and then, you know, we looked at some videos on YouTube of real dogs playing fetch. We actually went and played fetch with our own dogs and we're like, wait a minute. In real life, when, when the ball bounces, or even when you throw the ball and the dog hasn't quite seen where it's going, they overshoot it all the time. And then they spin wildly and look around and they miss it for a few <laughs> moments and finally they find it and run back to it. So we can actually just let the system overshoot and then play an animation of Alice correcting to look for the toy again. Uh, and it looked totally natural, especially in an environment like the aquarium where the floor is slick and she kind of slides around on it. So we... Yeah. Could even to some extent not have to worry about animation sliding with her. Yeah, that that's incredible. I'm glad I asked about the animals. While we're on the mocap <laughs> front, um, I guess it's more human related than animal at this point. But uh, we have a question from Terrence in chat uh, asking, since mocap is incorporated in The Last of Us 2, I wanted to ask how much input did you get from the actors themselves for their characters? And I would extend that to those like idle animations that you guys have done in the transitional uh, like animations you were talking about how much of that came from just like the actors themselves as they were just kind of like standing there versus you telling them to do a specific thing yeah um those are good questions that i can't answer firsthand because generally i mean mccall and the other animators and and um directors were primarily down there on the stage doing that mm -hmm. um certainly i know that yeah the just from seeing the difference between me writing down a list of potential idle animations we would want and then what came back from the stage and the the level of nuance and quality and variation that came from that. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the collaborations there are, are clearly amazing. Uh, I think our, our team knows really well what to ask for. And then we have a group of really talented actors who you know, not only understand the the vocal aspects, but just the the unique physicality that you need for these these challenging mm -hmm. gameplay situations. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to pull this from chat too. Um, this is from Lisa, uh, who asked in games, uh, there are moments uh, that, that constantly break you out of the scene by having the MPC be too close or the player clips over the player. And you worked on this kind of thing, uh, it, it sounds like. How did the team find a realistic level of distance for the NPC to follow? And how did you work that out? Yep. 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 Um, so, you know, that comes back to really trying to make the NPCs feel human and acting out, testing, you know, because it's certainly, it's it's one level to build a system where, you know, Joel exploring the museum, say, has this awareness of what the museum is and the dinosaurs are more interesting than just a random spot on the wall, right? Um, but even if you've built that system in and you've got Joel now smartly saying, okay, that dinosaur is on camera, 
and it's pretty close to Ellie and kind of her zone of the room. So I'm going to walk right over there, but his path takes him, you know, within a few inches of the player violating their personal space. And he doesn't really make eye contact or in any way acknowledge that uh, that's still, yeah, definitely going to break immersion. So we, the thing we start doing is building into this system also criteria to factor in where the player is and not only whether the destination is close to the player, but whether the allies path would take them too close to the player while walking there. And then we would downrate those options to avoid those situations where they're kind of violating personal space. And then, you know, on top of that, the other thing that um, it, it started off in the first last of us and it's great tech. So we kind of kept it around is that, is kind of a last ditch thing. If an ally gets too close to you or you get too close to them, they'll kind of like get surprised and, and back away at the last second. And this is something where, again, the varied NPCs do this in their own unique ways. Um, but that's just, that's what humans do when that tends to happen. So it's an easy thing to put in there as a fail safe. Um, I guess taking this out, unless you had a follow up on that, Chris, I don't want to cut you off. No, I, I was I was just going to say like the uh, the amount of iteration that it would take to nail it down as you know well as you got it must have been an incredible amount. <laughs> You're constantly looking at something. And it's like oh well, yeah, Joel's getting awfully uh, you know too like you know violating the personal space like you said, and then you just have to go in and then and tweak things constantly. I imagine. I imagine your, your list of fine details has to be incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely. Uh... You know, every job description lists detail-oriented. I've never seen a job description that asks for something that doesn't pay attention to details, but it's right. a very, very detail-oriented job for sure. Yeah. Um, okay. I'll, I'll just mention, too, though, one of the other interesting things. Once we have this system, we can tune it for different spaces in different moments in the game. And I think that's where we saw the most um, gains in terms of varying these things. So... If you compare a space like the aquarium that's kind of an interior labyrinth to that big Seattle exploration space that's wide open fields, um, this is another thing humans behave very differently given those different spaces. Mm -hmm. And so once we have the system, we can say, okay, if you're in the cramped aquarium, you know, we and you're trying to path to something that you might go past the player. Um, set the safe distance that you want to be away from them of a meter and a half or two meters, something relatively small, but still not going to make the player uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But in a more wide open space, we might put that at five or six meters or even 10 or 20 to really keep you spread out, feel like you're really freely exploring, that you're casual and safe to roam around that area um, because that feels more natural in that larger, more open environment for most of the answers here, um, that it's a very multidiscipline focused process, uh, game development as a whole, and specifically a lot of the things you're talking about here. Um, so I want to ask a question, I guess, uh, about what's your team dynamic like within Naughty Dog? How do you work cross-discipline and kind of like keep that productivity and communication going throughout? Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, it's super collaborative. I think one of the interesting things to me coming from smaller teams that had a, you know, I, you'd call a more indie vibe, I guess, where it's, you know, 10 to 20 people all working in the same room or space. And if you want to talk to the artist, you get up and walk across the room and, and talk to your artist. Um, Naughty Dog really works the same way, just on a, a larger scale. Now we're on the whole floor of a building rather than a single room. Um, but yeah, that 
that uh, level of cross-departmental collaboration uh, really stands out to me. And the other thing that struck me joining the team as you know, a relatively young, fresh designer was, you know, there are people there with decades of experience who've given multiple GDC talks that before I joined the company, I watched their GDC talks to learn about game design. And um, once I was there, I'd need to, you know, in the first few weeks, go up and ask them some really dumb question or consult with them on some design moment that I was just tasked with figuring out for the first time. And no matter who it was, people there have so much generosity with their time and will once you treat you like any mem other member of the team as soon as you've come on board. And like, I have as much to contribute and my input is just as valuable as everything that they've done going all the way back to Jack and Daxter or whatever game they started mm -hmm. working on. Um, I guess building on that a little bit, as someone who kind of came in as a new designer to this really established like team and studio, uh, do you have any advice for developers who might find themselves in that situation in the near future for that like first week or month or year? Yeah, I mean, one challenge that I always think about is the balance between having the the confidence and the commitment and conviction in your designs and your prototypes as you're building them. Uh, well, at the same time, having the humility and generosity and collaborative spirit to take feedback from other people, to listen for good ideas wherever they come from, and then find ways to incorporate those good ideas into your own work. Um, I wouldn't say that's an easy balance to strike, and it's something that I'm constantly learning how to do better. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, really building up those collaborative skills. And I think that's something where uh, kind of this small scale iteration of moving forward step by step can be really valuable too, because it's it's easier to build a small version of something, get the, the very basics of it proved out, and then go to someone, an animator or an artist or a programmer and say, okay, here's what I've got. You know, what are the issues with this that you see? What are the ideas that you have for it? Okay, let's identify there the next small steps that we can move this forward that incorporates that and starts opening up the potential for more and more and bigger and bigger. Um, we're going to take a quick break. Nobody go anywhere. See you in a bit. Game developers who want to grow their business may want to look to new markets where they can sell their games, and India, with its burgeoning game market, is a prime region where a company can find new players. Exola is a game commerce company that offers a suite of tools that can help you expand the reach of your game in new markets like India. Find out more about what Exola can do for you and your game company at gamedeveloper.com business slash Exola India. That's XSO. LLA India. Check it out. We're going to jump right into it with a question right off the bat from chat. Um, thank you for your guys' wonderful, I think, dinosaur discussion going on in there. It's been a wonderful read so far, and we're hopefully going to get some time to touch on that. Um, but pulling a question from Lisa in chat here, Brian, what was your favorite NPC moment or interaction in the entire game? In the entire game? Maybe um, a spoiler light uh, answer, if that helps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there are a lot. I have a lot. Um, one that jumps out to me, uh, and it's actually one that I I didn't work on a lot it, until late in development, kind of the final shipping stage. I um, 
was asked to jump into this level to do some final polish and bug fixing. Um, but my colleagues had set up this, this amazing moment. It's when you're playing, okay, spoiler alert, if you've never played the game and really don't want to know what happens, but when you're playing as uh, Abby um, and you're exploring through abandoned post-apocalyptic Seattle and you're with Lev, who I mentioned earlier is this kid who came out of the sheltered warrior culture um, and you're going through all these old abandoned coffee shops and ramen restaurants and hardware stores with these eccentric murals painted on the walls. And I, I think a lot of players probably miss this as an easily missable moment, but at some point Lev starts wandering up to those murals and just kind of quietly commenting half to himself, half to the player about them. Um, and when I first encountered that moment, again, that my colleagues had set up and I was just playing through the level to make sure I had a full understanding before I started bug fixing. And I, I encountered that moment and I was like, it, it was so moving to me just because, you know, here first it's, it's Lev is showing awareness of the world. He's noticing this strange thing. He's reacting as I would as the player. Like I looked mm -hmm. at the cat mural just after he talked about it, this painting of dancing cats on the wall. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of weird. And Lev had just commented, it's kind of weird. And then, you know, you can trigger an interaction moment where Abby talks with Lev about these murals and starts trying to explain them, um, which is not only showing, you know, Lev is also aware of the player and treating you as a human, but you are starting to embody the role that Abby is growing into as sort of this parental figure for Lev, almost mm -hmm. paralleling the Joel-Ellie relationship in the first game. And it's this little in-game play, almost missable moment that starts to build that relationship that ultimately builds up and builds up and builds up until Lev at sort of the very pivotal moments of the game is the kind of moral force that causes Abby to change her whole story arc or rethink her actions. So, it, you know, little moments like that that start that whole thing that are in gameplay uh, mm -hmm. that happen with NBCs are, are just really cool and memorable to me. That gives me nerd goosebumps right there. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, that's so that's so cool. Um, so I feel like uh, I'm I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot, and I just need to address the giant dinosaur discussion that's go that's going on here. So let's say theoretically, if you are making a game and you're you're going to have say a a velociraptor as a, a friendly um, allied MB NPC during ambient gameplay, where do you begin on making a believable? <laughs> Awesome. Companion. awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd start off by, you know, thinking about all the Velociraptor references out there. I'd, I'd definitely go back and watch Jurassic Park and all the Jurassic Park extended universe. Um, yeah, look at some visuals. We do, you know, all that kind of stuff a lot to kind of pull tone and, and experience and, and everything else that we want the player to feel. And then, yeah, think about little vignettes um that might actually play out in the game so when the player is you know moving through the world with this velociraptor what is going to be their experience of that what is going to make that you i mean i think we've already got kind of unique and memorable nailed down there um but how do you really sell that so thinking through you know what is distinctive about velociraptor character i think first what is expected right so you know they're smart vicious rendered as larger than they were in real life, you know, all those kinds of aspects. And then how do you 
turn some of those expectations on their heads or use them in a way that's advantageous as a friendly NPC. So, you know, can you have the Velociraptor open doors for you or solve puzzles with you? Um, are there things about its nature or behavior that it's going to want to, you know, if it sees a squirrel run by, it's going to want to chase it and try to eat it, which is something you don't necessarily have to deal with with a human NPC. Um, and then there are all the space design considerations too. So that's the point at which we'd actually put together a small test level in the game, um, get some initial motion capture of a Velociraptor, which you would probably be humans in some sorts of suits, um, and bring those motion captures into this little level and then start figuring out, okay, what kind of geometry, what kind of spaces actually work for a creature that, you know, has this big old tail, has these giant claws, can jump around, is maybe a little bit taller than a human, um, in what spaces work well for you and the Velociraptor to explore together and, you know, build a little playground to actually test those kinds of things out. That's a great answer. <laughs> that, 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 that ended up being the, uh, the most interesting <laughs> conversation <laughs> of this podcast. Uh, yeah. What, what other theoretical animals can we throw at you? No, um, <laughs> we'll spare it. We'll spare you there. Um, we did have a, a question that we can hit. Um, Let's see. William asks, every time I've listened to someone from Naughty Dog speak, uh, there's a lot of emph emphasis on the culture of collaboration. Would you say some of these relationships manifest in the characters and the relationships in, uh, in the games you make? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I would say, yeah, I think there are. There are without question little moments in the office or small interactions that that wind up going into the game or. Um, okay, so, it, it, you know, just to pull out another small example, in one of the other little early test beds for all this new uh, MPC tech we were putting in is when Ellie is exploring the flooded area of downtown Seattle with Jesse, um, and they find this abandoned bookstore. And deep down in one corner of the bookstore, there's this old kids section uh, that, you know, has kind of this storybook treatment to it. Uh, including these giant toadstools that rise to the ceiling. Uh, and I think looking at that space, you know, we had this thought, well, someone in a post-apocalyptic world where this mushroom-based cordyceps virus turned most of the human population into zombies would have a very different reaction to storybook mushrooms than, than us in pre-apocalyptic world. Yeah. So we just have Jesse comment on that. If you pay attention and walk into that section, he says, hey, it's kind of messed up. They're putting mushrooms in the kids section. And then Ellie gently corrects him and explains, you know, it probably meant something different. But oh, that was just based on our own thoughts and reactions about, you know, how they might interact and behave in that in that space. Yeah, that's so cool. So like we're, we're running really short on time. Um, what about the, uh, this, this last question? Uh, what were the main pillars in terms of design goals uh, when designing uh, TLU 2? Can we call it TLU? I heard you say that in your talk. I think I'm going to start do doing that. So sure. uh, yeah, could you just talk about pillars that you had to follow within your, your discipline? Yeah, I mean, you know, since I focus mostly on these ambient storytelling spaces, um, you know, I mean, the big pillars we always have are, are being player favoring, um, finding ways for to kind of align gameplay and storytelling and narrative. So it all comes together um, to use the opposite of the overused Mimi term. We, we seek ludonarrative consonants in okay. our, in our game. <laughs> 
And um, yeah, really then focusing in also on, I think it's important to think about, you know, what are the simple unifying goals for what we want players to experience? In my case, vis-a-vis -vis these exploratory spaces and these NPCs, what are the really core things that need to come across? And it was, you know, their sense of awareness of the space, their sense of engagement with the player and the sense that they were real humans that had their own emotions and feelings and opinions about the world and about you and what you were doing mm -hmm. um, and finding ways in every little moment and in the design of every little system to, to bring that out and bring that forward to the player. So you get this coherent experience across this whole sweeping game. That's so excellent. And with that, we're pretty much out of time. Thank you so much, Brian, for your amazing uh, answers. And uh, everybody, check it out seriously. And then, mm -hmm. and then I would say go back and play the game because for you sure. just you know, like will be fascinated by what's going on under the hood. Thank you to everybody who has been participating in chat and watching or listening to us in the background. Um, so you can catch more episodes of GDC Podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Please rate us. <laughs> Just give us five stars, please. We're, we're okay. So, okay. So with that, thanks everybody. Thank you. Bye.